You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Open your Bibles to John, uh, sorry, not John, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. I want to ask the question, how important is the gospel? How important is it really? Surely after all these years, after all these centuries, the gospel's outmoded. It's unnecessary, it's old-fashioned. Surely in this modern age, we've outgrown the gospel. Isn't the gospel just to get you saved in the first place? And then once you're saved, you no longer need it? Isn't it just a matter then of getting down to business, doing good works, serving people, being the best person you can be, going to church every week, praying and reading your Bible every day? Isn't it? Isn't that what it is? Isn't that what's important now? Once you've you've received the gospel and been saved, it's now time to do, isn't it? Not just believe any longer. Well, not according to Paul. According to him, the gospel isn't about doing at all. It's about believing. It's a bit like Jesus has been telling us as we've been working through the first several chapters of John's gospel over the last year or so. So if the gospel is not about doing good works, what is it about? Is there something that we need to know when it comes to truth, specifically Christian truth? Maybe it's just that God wants us to be happy. Certainly there is some truth in that statement. God does want us to be happy. But it's just that God's idea of happiness may not be the same as ours. In fact, it seems to me that God frequently begins the process of making us happy by first making us miserable. (laughs) I recall having an encounter with God in my early teens. I was on a Christian youth camp for a weekend. I don't recall how I came to be there as I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I didn't go to church except when mum made me go. But anyway, at the end of the camp on the Sunday night, a man preached a message about Jesus Christ. Now, I don't remember a single thing about the message he preached. I don't think I was taking any notice of him. At the end, though, he asked us all to close our eyes and he asked anyone who wanted to commit their life to Jesus Christ to put their hand up. Now, about the only thing I do remember about that night was sitting there thinking, no way am I going to do that. How embarrassing. No way am I going to do that in public in front of my friends. It's the last thing I'm going to do. But as I sat there with my head bowed and my eyes closed, my hand went up in the air. To this day, I still get goosebumps when I tell this story. It's like my hand was lifted by an invisible force, seemingly against my will. Now, the preacher dismissed the meeting, and those of us who had put our hands up were invited to go into a back room for some prayer and some ministry and to talk about it. And I recall being the only boy in that room amongst three or four or so girls. And the girls were all sobbing, weeping loudly. I, however, wanted to laugh. (laughs) Now, it it wasn't a mocking laugh, but it was a laugh with joy. I was elated. 
like I'd won a huge prize. Also remember wondering why I was the only one that seemed happy. Why did all these girls seem so miserable? Well, I went home that night to tell my family about how I'd become a Christian. Dad was an atheist, so he wasn't very impressed by that. I think Mum was happy about it. I don't know for sure. I don't remember. I do know my older sisters were happy because they were already Christians. I bought my first Bible the following Saturday, which I've still got on my bookshelf. Started going to church and youth group and Bible studies every week. And even went door knocking to tell people about Jesus Christ and about how much God loved them. And I did that for a couple of months. My passion quickly began to taper off. Maybe three months or thereabouts later, I abandoned it all and spent the next 15 years running away from God. It took me a long time to understand what had happened to me back at that camp, and I'm not sure I fully understand it even today. I think, and only God knows this for sure, but I think I was like one of the soils that Jesus talked about in Matthew 13. Now you'd remember the story, a man goes out to sow seed. He begins to throw the seed around indiscriminately. There doesn't seem to be any particular purpose and plan to the way he spreads it, but he throws it around indiscriminately. Some of it falls on the path and the birds eat it quickly. Some of it falls on rocky ground. Without much depth of soil, it springs up quickly, but because it has no real root, it quickly withers and dies. Some of the seed falls amongst the thorns and gets choked out by the thorns, but some falls on good soil, soil that has been properly prepared. Those seeds grow up into healthy plants and bear fruit 30, 60 and 100 fold. Now Jesus goes on to explain those four types of soil to his disciples. The seed scattered on the path represents those who hear the message of the kingdom of God, but don't understand it. The evil one, that is the devil, quickly snatches away what has been sown. The seed sown on the rocky ground is the person who hears the message and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root in himself, Jesus said, but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Immediately, he falls away. I think that was me all those decades ago. The seed sown in the thorns is the person who hears the message, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it bears no fruit. Finally, the seed sown on the good soil speaks of those who hear and understand and accept and believe and hold fast to the word. Only these ones go on to bear fruit. So what's all that got to do with most? what's most important for us? I can't be entirely certain what happened to me all those years ago, nor can I be sure what it all meant. I was deliriously happy for a while, and maybe only eternity will reveal what it all meant. But what I've come to understand is that there is more, much more, to the gospel than a shallow God just wants you to be happy message. I was certainly happy then for a while, but it didn't last and it certainly didn't sustain any faith. In fact, it seems to me that the gospel, the true gospel, starts with a message that's more likely to make you feel miserable. And strangely, this seems to be a far important way 
to approach things for than it is for our happiness. It must be because God has designed it that way. So if you open up to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll have a look starting in verse 1, what Paul has to say about this. <clears throat> and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians would realise that the previous three chapters, 12, 13 and 14, spend a lot of time dealing with spiritual gifts and love. And straight after those three chapters... Paul brings us back to ground zero, back to the basics. He wants to remind his hearers, he wants to remind us of what is most important. And what is most important about truth, about the gospel, is not spiritual gifts, in spite of what many churches would tell you today. Spiritual gifts are not the gospel. The gospel is far more important and has far more power than spiritual gifts do. For the gospel which you received and by which you stand is what has saved the Corinthians and continues to save the Corinthians. The gospel message is not a one-off message that can be discarded once you've received it. It's not like that vaccination that many of us had as infants for polio. You get the shot once, and you're protected for life. Note what Paul says about this gospel, by which you are being saved. The gospel does have an ability to save in the first place, but it does more than that. It continues to save. It continues to do its work in us, as long as we don't abandon it. We never outgrow the gospel. We never mature beyond our need for it. We need it every day. We need to be reminded of it continually. It is far too easy to neglect it, to be distracted by other things, for the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, to succumb to other temptations or pressures or cares or persecutions, and to forget the good message to abandon it entirely. Paul tells us that it's the gospel by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. Be careful. You must cling to this gospel. It must never be far from your thinking. The day you imagine you don't need it anymore is the day you run the risk of missing out on everything the gospel promises. For the gospel only does its good work in those who receive it initially and continue to stand in it and hold fast to it. What happens to those who abandon it? They reveal that they never really received it in the first place. Whatever it was they received and accepted and believed was not the gospel. Whatever it was, it had no power to save them. 
unless you believed in vain, is how Paul puts it here. I think on reflection that this describes my experience as a youngster. Whatever it was that I received, I believed in vain. I did not continue to stand on it, to hold fast to it, which tells me at least one thing, that it wasn't the true gospel that I received. For what does the true gospel teach us? What is its emphasis? What is its most important message? That Christ died for our sins. That's a bit I don't think I understood way back when. Sure, it's nice that Christ dies for us, but what does that actually mean? Surely he didn't just die for some airy, fairy, vague concept. No, he died for something tangible, something solid, something substantial, something horrific. He died for our sins. And that's where the rubber hits the road. He died for our sins. I don't think I had any concept of my sinfulness before a holy God all those years ago. If I had, I imagine I would have felt more broken, more distressed, maybe more like those girls who were weeping instead of laughing. We can't overemphasize the separation that our sin creates between us and God. It doesn't just cause a bit of frostiness for a time like it might between friends who have had a falling out. Instead, it separates us with an unbridgeable gap. It puts us at enmity with God. We are strangers, aliens and foes of God. There is nothing about him that we desire. And there is nothing desirable in us from God's perspective. His perfect holiness cannot tolerate sin, cannot even look upon sin, and cannot turn a blind eye to it. His holiness demands punishment for sin. And from the earliest pages of the Bible, it's clear what that punishment must be. Death. Nothing else is an adequate punishment. That's how serious sin is. But that creates a problem, an insurmountable problem. Sin, which we delight in, cuts us off from God. It makes us a stench in God's nostrils. When you truly grasp how offensive our sin is in God's sight, how deserving of his wrath and eternal punishment we are, it should break our hearts. And it would break the heart of every person on the planet if only we weren't also dead in our sin. If only we had eyes to see ourselves as we truly are and to see him as he truly is. I can't say for sure, but I suspect the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of those girls to see their sinful state and recognise their desperate need of mercy. I certainly didn't see that at the time. You may recall that Isaiah got a glimpse of the perfect holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and it broke him. Then I said, Isaiah writes, Woe to me, there's no hope for me. I am doomed because every word that passes my lips is sinful and I live among people whose every word is sinful. And yet with my own eyes I've seen the King, the Lord Almighty. We cannot think 
speak or do anything to please God in our natural state. So what do we have to offer him that he would look on us with favour? Now that hardly sounds like good news, does it? And it isn't good news. In fact, it's sad, depressing, disheartening, discouraging news. As I said, frequently God makes us miserable before he brings us happiness. You see that time and time again throughout the Bible. In fact, sometimes he brings us into his family by telling us he is going to make life hard for us from the beginning. That's what he did with the Apostle Paul. When God sent Ananias to lay hands on Paul in Acts chapter 9, he said to Ananias, Go, for Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God never promised Paul a happy life. In fact, he promised him the opposite. Nor did he promise it to Peter. Shortly before Jesus was taken back up to heaven, he had this to say to Peter in John chapter 21, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. When you, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, what would inspire anyone to fall for a line like that? Imagine using that as a pickup line in a bar. Follow me and you'll suffer and die a horrible death. What sort of invitation is that? And yet that's precisely the invitation that caused the original disciples to commit to following Christ for all their days. God just wants you to be happy? I have a sneaking suspicion that an invitation like that would have meant nothing to the original disciples. So what was it that caught their attention and captured their hearts? I think it's the same thing that caused the Philippian jailer to tremble with fear and beg of Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? It's the same thing that caused the crowd to cry out on the day of Pentecost to be cut to the heart and cry out, Brothers, what shall we do? That message was, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. They recognised the holy righteousness of God and they recognised their own sinfulness, their shame and their guilt before this holy God. The Lord captured their hearts first by making them miserable about their sin. How many people can testify to that? How often do you hear someone share a testimony of God's grace reaching down into their sin, their degradation, to lift them up, wash them clean, and stand them up again? It's not an uncommon story amongst Christians. That's the beauty of the gospel. We may be living in squalor, but he doesn't leave us there. Christ died for our sins. He took on himself the punishment that was due to us. He served the sentence of death that we deserved. The full measure 
of wrath that we had earned was poured out on him on the cross. That, friends, is the gospel. That is of first importance. That is the most important thing you will ever know. And it's not a feel-good message by a long shot. Actually, it's a feel-bad message. But it's a message that offers a feel-good result. That's what stirred the first disciples to give their lives for this man called Jesus Christ. And it has stirred untold millions down through the ages to suffer and give their lives for him too. Now that's not the whole of the gospel, of course, but it is the foundation of the gospel. Paul goes on to write, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is emphatic that Christ died. He didn't pass out and revive in a, the cool of the tomb like some like to believe. He actually died. And it's also emphatic that he was buried, as if to make the point that he really was dead. All of this was predicted in the Old Testament, of course. None of it should have been a surprise to the Jews, but sadly, it was a surprise to them, to many of them. Far too many of them refused to connect the Old Testament prophecies that they knew by heart with the events of Jesus' life. And so they missed the benefits of the gospel. Then to continue to make the point that it really was Jesus who really did die, Paul tells us that he was raised back to life bodily for all to see. Again, there were some who would claim that he was raised spiritually, not bodily. But that's not what Paul proclaims here. That's not the gospel. The resurrected Jesus goes on to appear to hundreds of people, some of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this. It's as if Paul is telling them, if you don't believe me, go and check with all these others. They're still alive. They'll set you straight. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul had not only seen the resurrected Jesus Christ firsthand, he knew the same experience of devastation when he saw the inky blackness of his own sin and depravity. I am unworthy to be called an apostle, he declares. Peter knew it too. Remember when they toiled all night fishing and caught nothing? And Jesus tells them to throw their net over the other side of the boat, and they pull up a haul of fish so great that the boat nearly sinks. And what was it that Peter says to Jesus? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Or remember how Peter felt when the horror of his betrayal of Jesus sunk in. He wept bitterly. The gospel message presents a stark contrast for us, a black and white separation of our heinous sin and Christ's holy, 
but merciful death for us. There are no shades of grey here. This same Paul, the one who was saved on the promise that he would suffer, later went on to write in Romans 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What a strange message this gospel is. A message that never promises to give you all the things that you think would make you happy. And instead causes you to rejoice in suffering. The New Testament is full of this strangeness. Acts 5.40 tells us about when the Pharisees had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. Strange gospel message. Colossians 1.24, Paul writes, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. Peter writes in his letter, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. But rejoice in so as far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What a strange message this gospel is. It's counterintuitive from start to finish. It's designed to make you so grateful that you'd gladly, willingly endure anything for the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. While I'm saying I'm certain that God's purpose for us is not primarily to make us happy, I'm not saying that God wants us to be unhappy. He's not opposed to us being happy. A miserable Christian, I think, is a contradiction in terms, or at least it should be. But happiness that God is interested in providing for us has exactly nothing to do with our circumstances, nothing to do with our health, our wealth, our possessions, our security, our comfort. It has everything to do with what Christ has done on that cross. In fact, the gospel does much more than provide happiness. Happiness, it seems to me, is a fleeting emotion stirred by what is happening around us at any particular time. Something good happens, we feel happy. Something bad happens, we feel unhappy. What God does instead by the gospel goes much deeper than that. He produces a joy in us that is unshaken by our circumstances. Imagine the storm on the ocean. The water can be boiling on the surface, waves crashing every which way, 10, 20, 30 feet high. But go down 50 feet or 500 feet below the surface and all is calm. You'd never know there was a storm raging above you. That's what the gospel produces. A calm, a peace, a joy that is unaffected by circumstances. 
course, 500 feet below the surface of that storm, there are still currents flowing. And for the one who is received and held to and standing firm on the gospel, there is an undercurrent of joy below every storm of our life. The gospel does, in fact, produce rejoicing in the midst of bad circumstances. That's the gospel message. A message that Christ died to deal with our sins once and for all and to plant seeds deep in our soul that bear the fruit of everlasting joy. That's incredibly good news for us. But it's not where the gospel message leaves us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The gospel is firstly something for us to believe, something to treasure in the very depths of our being. It's interesting when you read Paul's letters, before he ever tells you what to do, he first tells you what Christ has done. The first half of Paul's letters declare done. Then when he's finished saying done, he says, now do. He does that because what is of first importance is that you understand and believe that Christ died for your sins. What you believe shapes and motivates what you do. So this gospel message should stir us to action. But it stirs us to action because our gratitude for what we have believed in. I think Paul worked harder because he had a greater understanding of the foul blackness of his sin, which had manifested itself in his merciless persecution of the church. I think he probably had a greater understanding than even Peter or John or the other disciples had. And it stirred him to work harder, not to work his way into God's good graces, but rather because it expressed the deep, deep gratitude he had in his heart towards Christ. You know, any good works that we do that aren't motivated by gratitude towards the Lord, for his grace towards us, that don't spring out of a love for this gospel of our salvation, are not worth doing. Worse than that, they're positively sinful and they're offensive to God for they're not done out of faith. Romans 14.23 tells us that whatever is not of faith is sin. So what is it you're doing with your life? Are you just skimming across the surface, hoping for things to go right for you so you can finally be happy? It'll never work, you know. Nothing lasts. Nothing of this world will make you happy forever. Surely you've learnt that by now. You need this gospel. Are you plodding along in your faith? Not willing to abandon it, but not really stirred by the things of Christ either. Not really motivated to serve him or serve others with any particular enthusiasm and joy then you need to hear this message that is of first importance and you need to hear it over and over again until it captivates your soul.
Do you feel like you've drifted away from him? Like you've left your first love? Do you wonder why he seems so distant from you? As Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember what Christ has done for you. Remember the gospel and immerse yourself in it over again. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised again on the third day. That, my friends, is where true, unshakable happiness is to be found. Are you convinced that happiness and health and wealth are the promises of the gospel? That they are of first importance? I'm sorry to tell you that you'll only be disappointed when that gospel doesn't deliver what you think it should. And worse, you'll be tempted to turn your back on Christ entirely. For it's a false gospel. Throw out all those prosperity gospels throw them out today and immerse yourself instead in the true gospel the one paul preached christ died for our sins he was buried and he was raised again to life that is the only true gospel that is in fact the only thing you really need to know believe that hold fast to that and you'll be saved it is of first importance for a reason. And it's also the guarantee of eternal life. As Paul goes on to make clear in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, the simple fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected bodily from the grave is the assurance that there will be a resurrection bodily for every believer. I hope and pray that you'll put your trust in him, in this message of the gospel of Christ who died, was buried and raised to life again. If you haven't done that yet, or if you've been trusting in anything else to save you, I'd ask that you turn to Jesus Christ today with a simple prayer. Lord, I do believe that you died on that cross, that you died for my sins. I believe that you were buried and raised again to life. And I ask you, Jesus, to rescue me from my sin and rebellion and save my soul eternally. And I'd like to invite those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ this morning to take the bread and juice for communion. We'll share that now. And I invite you to stand as we share in this. And let's, uh, let's pray firstly, shall we? Lord, let us never stray from this gospel, this gospel of our salvation. Keep it close to our hearts and our minds every day, Lord. Stir in us a deep, deep gratitude towards our Saviour, Jesus Christ. A gratitude that never wavers for the rest of our days. As we gather this morning around the communion table, Lord, we want to express our love for you. We want to represent you well, Lord. Our hope, Lord, is in the resurrection to life. 
that you have promised to all who put their trust in you. And we're reminded this morning, Lord, as we share in this communion, we're reminded by the wafer and by the juice that you rose bodily from that horrific death where you carried the full wrath of God on our behalf that you would set us free by this precious good news of the gospel. Christ died for our sins, was buried and raised again to life. Lord, this wafer and this juice tells us that we can look forward to that as well. So this morning we put our trust in you afresh and we rejoice in the gospel of our salvation, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's eat and drink together. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.